turn together for the very last time to the book of Titus. We're going to be looking this morning at Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Come to the end of the short road of this short but very helpful epistle. Next week, Dr. Rankin will be preaching, and then in two weeks, we will begin a much longer road as we embark upon the book of Genesis. But for now, let's pay our atten- let's give our attention to Titus chapter three, beginning at verse nine. This is the very word of God. It is living and powerful. It is completely inerrant. It is sufficient for us. And it is authoritative over our lives. Titus, chapter 3. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the words that You have given to us by Your servant, Paul. The words, not only of wisdom, but of truth and of perfection that You have inspired by Your Spirit to Your servant, Titus. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us in our study of the word, that even as we look at it this morning, that we would learn from it, that we would mark it, that we would digest it, that our lives would be changed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of this book of Titus. It's a short letter, it's a short book because it is a letter, but in it, Paul has given us a great deal of wisdom. Paul has taught us about the great promises of God. Paul has taught us what Jesus Christ has done in His atoning work of the cross. Paul has taught us how we appropriate that work by faith, that the grace of God comes to us by trust in Jesus. He's also taught us what it means to be godly. And if you recall, he taught that to all of us, young and older alike, men and women, servants and elders. 
He's also taught us how we are to serve one another. And this concluding section here is, in a sense, Paul's wrap-up application of all that was in the book. You know how preachers do that. They say, in conclusion, and you hope what follows from there is a good two or three minutes of application, not twenty. Right? Paul here is brief and he's to the point. But don't forget what we have been studying because he really is wrapping it up for us in a way in which we can understand. And he does it by talking about something that I think is easy for us to grab onto. He talks about being profitable. Now, this is something that is very much in our society and in our news today, right? When you're in difficult economic times, everyone is very keenly aware of what it means to make a profit. Whether it's the company you own or the company you work for, or whether it's just that you hope and pray that at the end of the month you have more money than month. You want to turn a profit, put some into savings. This is good, we know this. And to be unprofitable, we also know is is a very bad thing. It's a waste. It's a loss. But what Paul is talking here is not about money. What Paul is talking about is your life. Is your life a profitable life? Or is your life an unprofitable life? And what Paul reminds us is there are all kinds of standards about what is profitable. The number of friends on Facebook. The number of digits in your bank account. The manicured perfection of your lawn. The respect you get at the office. The number of children you have. But none of these things in the final analysis is the profit of your life. The profit of your life is found in following Jesus Christ by His grace. And so he gives us two directives and then a final brief wrap-up point. The two directives are that we are first and foremost to shun the unprofitable. Now you know what shunning means. Stay away from. We are to shun the unprofitable and we are to stick with the profitable. And then finally, we are to see the important things. Shun the unprofitable. Stick with the profitable. And see the important. Let's begin then by looking at what it means to shun the unprofitable. Paul begins here in verse 9 with that little word that we have come so often to know and love. But... When we see but, we look back and we wonder what the change is. Paul has said in verse 8 that his saying is trustworthy and he wants us to insist on these things, to believe these things, and to be careful and devote ourselves to good works because these things are excellent, and here's our word again, profitable for all people. He says, but there's some others out there who don't think this saying is trustworthy, who don't devote themselves to good work, who don't desire to be profitable. He says, you must avoid this. You must avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And he says, for they are unprofitable. 
They're worse than unprofitable. They're worthless. Now, these are four errors that Paul lists. They're not that different. He lists all four of them in 1 Timothy. He lists two of them in 2 Timothy. This is something that Paul is very concerned about when he writes to pastors. So what are they? The first is a foolish controversy. Now, controversy is something that is very interesting for us because we are a very double-minded culture with respect to controversy, aren't we? On the one hand, we just, we hate controversy. We don't want to be involved in it. We don't want to get in the middle of it. It's awkward. But on the other hand, we love it, don't we? We love the television shows where the talking heads not only talk to each other, but they yell at each other about controversial subjects. We love to get into things where there's great detail or where we can have meaty discussions with others. We look at the news and the tabloids and the gossip pages. As a culture, we want to push controversy away and at the same time pull it close to us. So how do we respond to this as the people of God? Well, the first thing we need to understand is this is not a license to avoid thinking about difficult things. Paul is not saying any time you come across anything that's controversial, zip your lip, drop it, don't fight with anyone about anything. How do we know that for certain? Because if that were true, then Jesus would be a sinner. Because Jesus was involved all the time in controversy with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees, with Jews, with Gentiles. He was seeking to correct their thinking to a biblical way of thinking, to tell them the Father's will. And he was not afraid to be sharp about it. So it is not that we are just simply to avoid anything that seems unpleasant. Because after all, Paul also is involved in controversy. We don't even have to go to another book to find it. We can just see here that he talks about false teachers, those who must be silenced because they're upturning families. Paul is no stranger to controversy. So what does he mean here? I think what we can gain from this is by looking at the character of the controversy. It's a foolish controversy. Now, You all know the Greek word behind this word, and I'm going to use it to help you understand. This is about controversies that are moronic. That's the word. They're foolish. They're stupid. They're worthless. Isn't that what we think when we call something moronic? It's not just unwise. It is Indicative of what we might call an empty verbal debate. It is a controversy of no consequence. The classic example that many of us use all the time about this is the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Which, by the way, is not even a real controversy. That's... Something that someone misunderstood a medieval debate and took it to even a higher level of ridiculousness. The question was not about the number of angels, but whether angels had material bodies in any sense. But even that is foolish. Because you see, 
We are to shun this kind of thinking because it takes us away from following the Lord Jesus Christ. It occupies our time in things that aren't important. We see this in the second thing, in genealogies. Now, this is not about Genesis or Matthew. You don't need to rip Matthew 1 out of your Bible. You don't need to take the entire part of First Chronicles out of your Bible. What it means is there are some who look and, looking at genealogies, think that they can find special spiritual meaning in them. That they can get a religious hand up just simply by studying genealogies and lists. That's foolish. It's a waste of time. The third thing that Paul talks about is dissension. Now, that's easy. We can understand why that would be harmful and worthless. Any parent who has more than one child understands this principle well. Any parent who has more than one child has at some time said the words, would the two of you, or three of you, please just knock it off and give me a little bit of peace here. I can't even hear myself think. Right? Sometimes, children are the recipients of that. Because, if we're also honest, when mom and dad are uncomfortable with each other and are having a bit of a disagreement about something, it's really hard to be a kid in the house, isn't it? You don't know what you're supposed to do. Dissension is difficult and harmful. The fourth thing that Paul talks about is kind of his definition for what is worthless. That is, fights about the law. That is, Old Testament rights and legalistic points that bear no resemblance to the truth of God's Word. Paul says that these are all worthless, and the reason that they are worthless is they all involve some form of speculation. They involve us trying to think we can be smarter than what God has given to us in His Word. You see, this is the kind of idle and empty talk that takes us away from the point of practical godliness. You see, the point of theology, the point of thinking, the point of real substantive controversy is to make us more like Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful quote that I encourage you to remember or write down. It's from William Perkins, one of the founding fathers of the Puritan movement. And he defines theology this way. Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. You see, the reason we study the Scriptures, the reason we think, the reason we reason, the reason that we do theology is so that we might be more like Jesus Christ. That we might be made into the image of Jesus. And when we are not doing that, it is a waste of time. So as you think about things, as you have difficulties with others, the main question you need to ask yourself, if it is profitable, is, is this making me or them more like Jesus? Do I think more like Jesus? Do I act more like Jesus? And if you don't, then you need to take a step back. It's unprofitable. 
But there's also not only unprofitable thinking, there's also an unprofitable company that we can keep. Paul gets to this in verse 10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. There are people that we can be around that are unprofitable to us. And if we are not careful, we can be unprofitable to ourselves and to others. There is a result here of wrong thinking. It takes us back to understanding that we must think through things because one who is divisive is someone who thinks the wrong thoughts. This word here, divisive person, is actually the word that we get heretic from. It's someone who is harmful to the body because he chooses himself and his own thoughts above those of the teaching of the Lord and His Word. But at the same time, as I remind you that this is a heretic, don't think this is just simply someone that has bad theology. Because if we do that, then we're tempted to escape from the point that Paul is making. We think that we are immune because, after all, last we looked, we weren't heretics. But what Paul is talking about here is more about attitude than about theology. It's about someone who has placed their thoughts of such an importance that it is impossible for them to be wrong. That everyone else must agree or they are wrong. And not just agree with their answer, but agree with their emphasis. That's what heresies are. It's often taking truths of the Bible out of context, out of proportion. And when we do this, we're unprofitable to others. Paul then says to us, okay, now you know who heretics are. How are you to deal with them? He tells us that we are to warn them and then have nothing more to do with them. This is the pattern of the Bible. When someone is doing something that is wrong, you cannot just give up on them. You can't just say immediately, I won't have anything to do with them. Do you notice that? Don't jump past, warn him once, warn him twice, to have nothing to do with him. Because that's where we like to go, because it's easier... And we think we are somehow defending God's truth more stridently. But really what Paul says is what we are to do is we are first to engage them, to seek them out. Now, notice Paul does not say, if they come to you and ask you, then you should explain to them their error. He says, you are to go and warn them. And if they don't listen to you, guess what? Go again. You are to take the initiative. You are to seek them out to show them that you love them because you want them to turn from the error of their ways. But we also don't want to make the opposite error, which is we're so concerned that we don't want to break relationships. And, and, you know, really, we don't want to be too hard on others. So maybe we can just let bygones be bygones. No. Paul says there's a stopping point. If someone is divisive, if someone is hurting the church, then you must take a stand. That can be very uncomfortable, can't it? You don't need to be old to understand this. You can be six. 
10. And if you take a stand for something that God's Word says, you might not be very popular in your classroom or on the playground or with some friends. But God says in His Word that even though we must reach out to others, there comes a point where we must stop, where we must stay away. Paul followed this advice himself in Romans 16. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have taught. Avoid them. These are people who seek to hurt the church. Now, why do we take this kind of judgment against them? It's because they are already morally judged. Paul says in verse 11, That we know, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He has his, he's all turned inside out in what he thinks. He has all the wrong priorities. Now, the language here is very vivid. It is not just what he thinks or who he is. These verbs here, warped and sinful are actually very active verbs. They're present active verbs. It means someone is is actively engaged in being sinful, in turning upside down himself, his family, and the church. And you cannot simply stand by and let that happen. You must act. You must act according to knowledge. You must investigate. You must engage. We must seek to understand what is going on. And if we do, then we can avoid being unprofitable. But that's not enough, is it? Because Paul also reminds us in verses 12 and following what it means to be profitable. He tells us to stick with the profitable. And here, he takes the other side of the coin, not only to avoid unprofitable company, but to have profitable company. We see this in verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Paul is telling us what it means to be profitable in the church. Now, right now, you're looking at this and saying, I don't get that. What I see in verse 12 is Paul telling me about a couple of guys whose names I can't pronounce, and he wants them to visit. What does that tell me about being profitable in the church? Well, think about the background of what is going on here. Everyone needs profitable company. Everyone. It's one of the reasons why you need to be a part of a church. You can't be a Christian by yourself. There's a saying that's true. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. If anyone could have applied for that job and gotten it, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? Writer of half of the New Testament, preacher, missionary, pastor. If anybody could be solid and just contemplate the Lord and just be in prayer with God and not need any help, it would be Paul. And here is Paul saying, Titus, I need you to come to me. I'm going to winter here in Nicopolis, but I need you to be with me. 
See, Paul wants Titus because he knows he needs encouragement. He knows he needs help. Do you know that about yourself? You see, we are often tempted to think that we don't need any help ever. That we've got it all together. If anything, if we need to be around other people, it's so we can help them. Paul says, that's not true. Paul certainly is profitable for others, but he needs profitable company around him. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, unless Paul has a Titus, unless Paul has a Timothy, unless Paul has a Tychicus around him, he won't be as profitable to others as he should be. So we need to be careful about the company that we keep. Do you keep company that lifts you up and encourages you? Do you keep company that encourages you in your walk with Christ? Company that points you to the Scriptures and their truth? Or do you keep company that binds you up in foolish controversies? That is divisive all the time, painful, difficult. Paul tells us that godliness comes from profitable company. Because you see, it's not just Paul, it's the whole church that needs this kind of company. Look at verse 12. Paul tells Titus to come to him, but he says, you have to wait. It's kind of a hurry up, but wait command. What? Come, but you need to, you need to wait. Don't come until I send Artemis and Tychicus. Because you see, Titus, the church cannot be without you. It needs someone. And when I send replacements, then you can come to me. But you see, that church was vulnerable. That church needed help. And it is important to us not to overestimate our growth and our ability. We need help, leadership, and people to hold us accountable. It's the only way we grow, not only as individuals, but as a church. And in reality, this is very much a summary of the whole book. Paul has been talking about The fact of accountability when he tells us how elders are to behave. He gives us motivation for our life when he tells us about our behavior. He gives us teaching by reminding us of great truths. And he says that we need others around us to encourage us in this. We need profitable company. But it's not just the company you keep. It's also the things that you do. Because, you see, part of the other way that we grow in Christ is by engaging in profitable work. And profitable work is kingdom work, according to Paul. He says here in verse 13, Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, this kind of focus upon work is is contrary to unprofitable thinking. We need to be engaged in things that make a difference. Engaged in things that will grow us and others. Not speculating. And if we do this, then we can be of great help to others and ourselves. As a matter of fact, kingdom work can turn us around so incredibly that it can make a lawyer profitable. Don't think that I don't know that this is the passage in the Bible where the lawyers are spoken well of. It is the only one, but it is a good one. I like Zenos. And you see, Zenos 
is loved by Paul because he's working for the kingdom. He's very likely a man schooled in Roman law, very educated. He's likely someone that could have made a great deal of money in the Roman civil system, but instead he is working to build the kingdom. Now, Apollos is someone that you know well. He is one who thought and spoke with great authority. So they are out doing the work of the kingdom. But this is not a spectator sport. Zenos may have gifts. Apollos may have gifts. But you see, Paul engages the congregation. They are to have an eagerness and a willingness to be involved in that same ministry, in that same kingdom work. They are not to stand by and see others do the work. That's why he is downright excited about it. He says, do your best. We might think of it in this way. He's telling them to be eager. Hurry up, come on, get going, is what he's saying. You've got to get involved in this. Roll up your sleeves. You need to be involved and you need to be very practical in the way you help. Don't just cheerlead. See that they lack nothing. Practically help them. Because you see, getting involved in kingdom work is a way in which we learn and grow. Paul says this here in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. That congregation, the church of Jesus Christ at Crete, is just like the church of Jesus Christ at Katy. You see, they are to learn by doing. You know this word for learn. It's the word that we get for disciple or making disciples from. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you want to be, according to our bulletin, a mature disciple? Then you must learn. And you learn by doing. You learn by good works. Now, at first glance, this makes no sense, does it? I should learn from a book or from a teacher. How do I learn from good works? Well, let me ask some of the more mechanically inclined people among us. We heard a bit yesterday about a gentleman who liked to work on cars. Did he learn how to work on cars by sitting in a study reading a book? Or did he get his hands all greasy? Did he tinker around a bit? Did he watch someone else work? How do you learn how to do those sorts of things? You have to be involved. You can't be detached. And so if you want to learn to be a loving Christian, here's a shock. You must love. If you want to learn to be a generous and godly Christian, again, you must be generous. You must be involved in others' lives. That's what Paul is saying. You have to get off the bench. You have to be in the game. You have to be following Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says profitable kingdom work is. This is a kind of fruitfulness that comes from working in the kingdom. Well, we make these things a priority. We shun the unprofitable. We stick to the profitable. 
And if we do that, as we look, we will see what is important. And we see this here in the last verse of this book. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. We see here from Paul that we must understand what is really, truly important in the Christian life. And at least here it comes down to two things. The first is love. And the second is grace. Love and grace. We see the love in Paul in the way he connects himself and others. Paul is all about connecting people together. Both individuals and the church in general. Do you notice how broad it is? All those who are with me send greetings. Grace be with you all. He wants everyone to know that He loves them. And He wants everyone to be involved in loving. Because you see, at its core, the Christian life is a shared life. It is a life that is imparted to us by Jesus Christ as He gives us new life, a new heart. Only by faith. Only by grace that we are turned from sinful, wretched creatures into followers of Jesus. And He gives us a new heart. And what do hearts do but beat? There's a reason why in our culture we associate heart and love. It's at the core of the Christian life. Faith in Jesus Christ brings about love for others in our lives. It makes us more effective with others. Love is important. The last thing we see that's important is grace. It's at the very end here of this last verse. Paul ends as he began. He says, Grace be with you all. It's the same way that he began earlier in in chapter 1. In verse 4, do you see? Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul is reminding us that after having given us all sorts of commands and exhortations on how we are to behave, in how we are to look, in what we are to do, that all of that is dependent upon the grace of God. Now, It may seem silly, but look closely at the end of verse 15. He doesn't say, grace be with all of you having a tough time. He doesn't say, grace be with those among you that really need it. You see, we tend to do that, don't we? We look at someone and we say, wow, they really need God's grace. Amen? And look in the mirror. We all need God's grace. Because apart from God's grace, we can do nothing. We are nothing. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Unless God, from His own unmerited favor, sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die a wretched death upon the cross, and unless He sent His Spirit to enliven us and to give us faith that we might know who Jesus is, that we might embrace Him by faith, then we are nothing but worm food. But if He does, then we 
our brothers and sisters with Jesus. We are beyond the angels. The image of God is restored in us because of the work that Jesus has done and is doing right now in your life. So would you have gospel fruit in your life? Would you be above reproach, as Paul describes? Would you like to know the truth deeply? Would you desire to be a witness for Christ? If so, it can only be by grace. Seek Him out now. Don't wait a day. It is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we live profitable lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for reminding us that all of our profit comes from You. We long, O Lord, to understand what You meant when You said, What does it profit the man to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul? Lord, we ask right now that You would remind us of our greatest need, that it is a need for You. And we ask, O Lord, that You would use us and equip us that we might be a blessing to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.